Father, this has been our prayer from the early days when we first gathered in corporate worship. And it is still our prayer today. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. Stoke the flame of grace in us. God, we were made in your image. We were made by you. We were made for you. As Augustine said, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We are resting this moment in the truth that the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. Blessed Son of God, our hearts yearn for you because of the blood that bought us, the love that sought us, the grace that taught us, and the grave that brought us into the fold. Father, we all know that we are about to enter spiritual warfare. Listening to preaching is spiritual warfare. Prepare us for war. As a result of this exposition, please help us to love you more purely, see you more clearly, and worship you more freely. This is our corporate plea. Amen. We are in our 12th installment of our 1 Corinthians series. And this text is <laughs> quite a doozy. I need to answer two questions to get us started. Why do I need the biblical text? Why do I need the historical context? Why do I need the biblical text? Why do I need the historical context? Why do I need the biblical text first? This text acknowledges that Christians who live in community together are going to occasionally have conflicts and disagreements. Believers are going to sometimes be at odds with one another. You need to know how to handle grievances among you. We have a good example in the text about how not to respond. Internal family disputes will happen. Will you deal with them biblically? You have a choice when faced with strife among the family. You can deal with it spiritually, or you can follow the Corinthians and deal with it culturally. That is why you need the biblical text. Now, why do you need the historical context? The city of Corinth had a love affair with litigation. They loved the courts, arguing the law, being represented by lawyers, they were probably the most litigated people in history. Greek playwright Aristophanes has, has one of his characters look on a map and ask where Corinth is located. When pointed out to him, he replies, there must be some mistake because he cannot see any lawsuits going on. The Christians, the, the Corinthians, had an entertainment-style court case. People packed the trials. They were enamored with the courts, the entire judicial process. In fact, on their day off, 
they would sit in the courts and watch the trials. We would play golf, go fishing, read a book, go to a Shakespeare play. They went to the courts. I read an entire section on litigations from this period. Court records and personal accounts. Some juries had over a thousand people. Uh, some reports of up to 6,000 people on a single jury. How long it must have taken for them to come to a unanimous decision. This was court TV before court TV. The people were enamored with it. Their notorious love for going to law was built right in to their culture. Now, here's how that culture was bleeding into the church. Church members were suing each other before a watching world. They were absorbing Corinth's approach to settling disputes instead of following the Bible's instructions. The values of the surrounding culture are so deeply ingrained in these people that it is starting to affect the church. They were used to getting their way in society through the courts, so that carried over into the church. We will get our way in the church through the courts. Meanwhile, this created an atmosphere of airing their dirty laundry before the city. Verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The word grievance speaks of a case that needs to be decided upon. Sometimes it's translated dispute or complaint. We are not given information on a particular grievance. I'm sure there were many in the church. Paul expresses a sense of horror. Do you dare allow this to lead to litigation? He expresses his high level of frustration. You are going before these secular courts that, don't, that know nothing of God's ways. Secular courts are unsuitable for settling disputes of this nature. Their civil litigation system shouldn't be engaged on these grievances. Why are you looking for arbitration outside of the church? The very idea that you would look outside of the covenant community defies biblical logic. Church fights should not be aired in Corinth's court. Church fights should not be aired in Corinth's court. Because it poisons the testimony of the church in the community. It damages the witness of the church. The Corinthians are snickering and laughing at the Christians who sit at their feet to settle internal problems. All the while, Jesus' name drug through the mud. We are supposed to be giving non-Christians reasons to repent and believe on Christ. We are not supposed to be giving them ammunition against God. This harms the reputation of the gospel in the eyes of non-Christians. If believers cannot settle minor rifts between themselves, that encourages the world to question the ability of the gospel to settle larger issues. It harms the church's reputation when we cannot solve such disputes. The world is watching how we manage our affairs. And they will magnify any inconsistency or sin. 
the Spurge said, the eagle-eyed world acts as, an, as a policeman for the church. It becomes a watchdog over the sheep, barking furiously as soon as, the, as soon as an argument arises. Be careful, be careful how you deal with internal pursuits. Does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Who are the saints? Well, that's, that's Bob the plumber and Sally the stay-at-home mom. They are members of the congregation. Grace-filled Christians unschooled in the law should have the necessary understanding to handle these matters. Grace-filled Christians unschooled in the law should have the necessary understanding to handle these matters. They don't need to be professional attorneys. They need to love the Lord, appeal to the scriptures, have a sense of impartiality, have the Holy Spirit of God within them, and that's sufficient. Secular people know their law books, but they don't know God's book. With, with all the gifts we have in Christ, we can settle minor disputes. It's a family matter, and the family will say, you need to apologize. You need to pay that back. You need to let it go. You're making a bigger deal of this than it needs to be. Paul blasts the church with six rhetorical questions. You've heard the first, now the second and third. Verse 2. Or do you not know? Now this is obviously something they should know. Paul appeals to it as well known. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? <laughs> church, it, it appears that you don't escape jury duty in the end. The day is coming when the world will stand before a jury made of the followers of Jesus Christ. This is a well-known teaching from the scriptures. And actually, it's more than jury duty. We will have the status of eschatological judges. We will sit with Christ as judges. Jude 14, 2 Timothy 2, Revelation 22, Daniel 7. We will share in that judgment. God's people are in participation with the Son in judging, holding the, that position of great honor and rule. And this church lacked an eschatological worldview. The promise that they will judge in the future should affect their behavior in the present. Jesus says, you're going to sit up there with me and reign the world. Verse 2 continues. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to judge, to try trivial cases? If we can sit with Christ and judge all creation, we can handle these matters. It's an argument from greater to lesser. Greater, you are going to judge the world. Lesser, you can judge these grievances. We get a little more detail on this situation the conflicts were first called grievances, and they are now called trivial cases. These are disputable matters, secondary matters that should not be rushed off to court. They are petty. They are small. The, the Roman law has small claims courts to deal with these matters, but Christians shouldn't engage them. They should resolve disputable secondary matters between themselves and not rush off to court. They are to bring it before the saints in the church, 
not judges in the world. Chrysostom, an expositor in the 5th century, said, it is a disgrace for Christians to be judged by outsiders over trivial matters when we shall judge them in far more important matters. Verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Paul is the only one in the Bible who says we will judge angels. And it's not clear which angels we will judge. The word judge can mean to rule or to govern. So this could refer to sinless angels that we are going to govern. But presumably, evil angels are in mind. Fallen angels. Isaiah 24, Matthew 25, 2 Peter 2, all speak of the future condemnation of fallen angels, otherwise known as demons. If we are going to judge the world and angels in the end, we certainly should be able to decide lesser ordinary matters. Do you see the logical progression of argument? Do you not know that you're going to judge the world? If that is true, then why are you asking them to judge between us? If A is true, then why B? It's another stinging rebuke. Why are you bringing this to Judge Judy? <laughs> if there are disputes, let a Christian in the church judge the situation. Paul thinks they are competent to make a decision. God gave the church what they needed to settle all these disputes. Sometimes the problem is not that the church is too judgy. It's that the church is not judgy enough. They need to render judgment on all these trivial matters. Verse 4. So if you have such cases, let's stop here. Paul acknowledges there will likely be such cases in the church. This is not a wish dream of a utopia community. This is reality. Sin is still present. Conflicts will arise. FFC is not beyond having issues like this take place. FFC is not beyond having issues like this take place. Even in our church, just because we are a close community here, you may buy a home from someone in the church. You may rent from someone in the church. You may have someone in the church do a remodeling job for you or plumbing or HVAC. You may hire a graphic designer in the church. And this is probably inevitable because we like to hire each other and help each other. You've got a skill or talent and someone has that need. You may go to an ear specialist in the church or an orthodontist. You may invest financially with someone in the church. You may buy property and have contracts. There may be times when a transaction goes wrong. And it goes wrong with another Christian in the church. Maybe someone doesn't pay the whole amount or doesn't disclose something or doesn't return phone calls or doesn't finish the job. I mean, some of this is bound to happen. There are so many interactions within the church. The problem is not the dispute. It's where you take the dispute. Verse 4 continues. 
Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Why would you go outside the church to solve this kind of dispute? Paul's not calling for something radical. He's calling for the church to handle her own business in the light of the gospel. How can the world render justice if they don't believe in the God of justice? Initially, Christians should try to solve and resolve their differences among one another in a respectable, honorable, non-secular court manner. If that doesn't do it, bring it to the church. Verse 5. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? In an honor and shame culture, this was a big statement. In chapter 4, Paul said, I do not want to shame you. Here, Paul openly and on purpose shames them. Why look to secular courts for justice instead of the church? The argument first goes like this. Practically anyone can solve these trivial matters. Okay, then, if, if not anyone, surely someone. Paul could name a dozen. He's just being sarcastic. He names a lot of people in chapter 16 of this book who are capable. Is there not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate? This deeply wounds them. They've been bragging about their wisdom. Paul says, you're calling yourself wise. Where is your wisdom now? You've shown your ability to be wise on the world's terms. Can't you not be wise on God's terms? Is there no one with the spiritual aptitude to lead the two parties to an amicable settlement? Verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother? And that before unbelievers? This, of course, is, is not biological brothers, but spiritual brothers. The word brother here also speaks of men and women, everyone in the family of faith. The Corinthians considered it highly appropriate to be engaged in, in inner family litigation. It was nothing for biological families to be in court against one another. But Paul says Christians shouldn't go to the courts against one another. They should settle it in the church. Our brotherhood bond is deeper than theirs. You're going to subject a brother to unbelievers? Put a brother in that situation? With the litigation mania of our day, we can all too quickly sue and bring a brother to court. We, like the Corinthians, are in a highly litigious society. <laughs> there are 1.3 million lawyers in the U.S. 75% of the world's attorneys live in the U.S. 40 million lawsuits filed each year. Don't allow the litigious nature of society to creep into your dealings with the brothers. John Piper writes, I can't think of any reason why a Christian would take another Christian to court. Peacemakers ought to go to peace with each other, not to go to court with each other. 
You could title this text, Why Christians Should Not Sue Christians. Verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Regardless of the verdict, you've already lost. You will always lose spiritually when you deal with problems within the church in a cultural manner. No matter who wins, everyone loses. The damage has been done. You may win your case, but you're still a loser. You're not a winner. There are no winners in this situation. Nobody wins except the devil. It is an utter defeat for all parties with the church as a whole becoming the real loser. Verse 7 continues. Why not? <laughs> why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Why does winning matter so much to you? They began to focus on rights. My right. What is due to me. Are your rights and reputation more important than the church? So much that you say, I'm, I'm not willing to take second place. I, I would rather ruin the reputation of my church than lose. You're motivated by self-protection. Too quickly seeking vindication and vengeance. Your primary responsibility is not to protect your rights but to protect your church. It is better to lose money than to lose a brother. Why do you value your rights above your brother? Paul turns to the two litigants themselves. First to the injured party, the innocent, the one who was cheated. And he says, why not endure being wronged and defrauded? If you cannot convince a brother to make it right, be willing to be defrauded. Accept some monetary setback. And instead of exacting your pound of flesh, why not take a loss? When we give up our rights for the sake of others, when we are willing to suffer wrong and be defrauded, we are beginning to look like Jesus. When we give up our rights for the sake of others, when we are willing to suffer wrong and be defrauded, we are beginning to look like Jesus. Edward Donnelly said, we believe in a Savior who gave up his rights for the sake of others and allowed himself to be robbed and hurt and cheated and killed. When we don't strike back, but we let go, we model Christ. We are way more concerned with our rights than Jesus was. When we are treated like Jesus by his own followers, we have an opportunity to respond like him. And by the way, we have cheated God, wronged him, defrauded him, yet he gave us mercy instead of judgment in a courtroom. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, Father, forgive us as we forgive others. He did not model for us. Father, forgive us as we take others to court. You might ask, Kyle, 
Does this allow vulnerable people in the church to be taken advantage of? No. The church is there as the safety net. Bring it to the church. No true believer would view this as a license to wrong others and through trickery take advantage of them. Paul turns to the two litigants. First to the offended, now the offender. First to the innocent, now the guilty. First to the one who was cheated, and now to the cheater. Verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. You are ripping others off. Doing it to, to your brothers in Christ. This is a wrongful exercise of power. And the church is here to call it out. Now, ideally, situations like this would lead to one Christian saying, look, brother, I'm going to drop the lawsuit. And the other saying, look, brother, I'm going to pay you what I owe you. By the way, if you owe money to anyone in this church, you need to pay it. You say, well, it's not really them, it's their business. You need to pay it. If you started a job for someone and didn't finish it, you need to finish it. Let's shift gears. Church, realize this text refers to trivial matters, not criminal matters. Realize this text refers to trivial matters, not criminal matters. If anyone has committed an actual crime, murder, rape, child abuse, physical abuse, the proper remedy is the government's justice system. The church doesn't hold murder trials. This is not referring to criminal offenses. We don't deal with criminal activity in-house. This text is dealing with a civil case, not a criminal case. Someone breaks in your house and they have a knife, and you call me and you say, Pastor, I need someone to mediate for me. He wants to take the TV, but I'm not sure I want him to take the TV. I'm going to say, you need to call someone with a gun. <laughs> the church seems to deal with sins, not crimes. If you call 911 over a sin, they aren't coming. Uh, 911, what's your emergency? My friend gossiped about me. <laughs> Ma'am, get off the phone. In criminal matters, always first call the law. Churches that use this text to cover up a crime should cease to be called churches. Churches that use this text to cover up a crime should cease to be called churches. Paul never intended for this to be used to cover up crimes in the church. If you come to us and confess a crime, and you ask, hey, can you keep it a secret? No, we will call the law. There is no confidentiality agreement with criminal activity. We don't hide crimes. We don't sweep anything under the rug. I've heard some churches say, well, we're going we're gonna to deal with it internally. And they harbor sex offenders, rapists, pedophiles. That's disgusting. And no true church would ever do such a thing. Paul doesn't say the courts have no authority. 
They have authority. Paul is not anti-government. Paul doesn't say the courts have no authority. They have authority. Paul is not anti-government. Paul is not against the government's justice system. He's not saying the courts never have a right to judge a professing Christian. Nor is he forbidding all recourse of legal action. Throughout the book of Acts, Paul repeatedly appealed to Caesar and the court. If his life was threatened by a non-believer, he was quite willing to go to court. But never would he take a fellow Christian to court over trivial matters. You must balance this text with Romans 13. God works through the secular courts and laws and law enforcers. The principle of this passage goes deeper than lawsuits. I want, you, I want that to land on you. The principle of this passage goes deeper than lawsuits. When you talk to non-Christians about problems you have with Christians in the church, you are violating this passage. Let me say that again. When you talk to non-Christians about problems you have with Christians in the church, you are violating this passage. Why talk to your non-Christian friends about problems you have with other Christians? You go to a blind sinner on his way to hell and you ask him to be your judge? Is that not a pathetic thing? It's a sad loss of perspective when you bring a trivial matter with another Christian to your unsaved mother or sister or friend. This passage four different times asked, why would you bring it to them? They are unrighteous, the world, they have no standing in the church, they are unbelievers. Why are you sharing your grievances, trivial cases, matters pertaining to life with them? Non-Christians don't sort the dirty laundry of Christians. Non-Christians don't sort the dirty laundry of Christians. All personal disagreements among Christians must be settled inside the church. Determine when you have a problem with another Christian in the church that you will do one of three things. One, you will either let it go. Two, approach them one-on-one. -on -one. Three, bring it to the church but you will never talk about it with a non-Christian outside of the church. You need to learn to settle disputes in a God-honoring manner, not in the public square, and definitely not on social media. Let me talk to non-Christians for a moment. Non-Christian, we don't want to bring our petty disputes to you. It's not because we don't want to be vulnerable or that we are afraid of you knowing what's going on. We don't want to bring our petty dis disputes to you because, number one, we want to obey Scripture. Number two, we don't want to cast a dark cloud over the beautiful gospel. Number three, you don't have the Spirit of God within you. You don't have a biblical worldview. 
You don't know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So frankly, you can't be of any help in this situation. You are not in the kingdom. Which allows us to transition nicely to this next section. Christians in court, 1 Corinthians 6 verses 1 through 8. Christians in the kingdom, 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11. Christians in court, Christians in the kingdom. Now look at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Basically, here's another reason you don't bring disputes before non-Christians. They will not inherit the kingdom. Now, this is the not yet kingdom. You could say that this is heaven, this is the new earth. Uh, this is where there are no more court cases and only God sits on the throne. Christ, look at the screen here. Christians in court, that's Christians present. Christians in the kingdom, that's Christians future. And what we have in the text here is sort of a blacklist. These are people who are not going to get into the kingdom. Their conduct excludes them from entering. None of these people will be saved. It is a solemn statement. It's a, it's a group of, of ten people. These ten people are all living in open rebellion against God and will not inherit the kingdom. Their lifestyle is incompatible with the gospel. The text says, do not be deceived. Uh, apparently, someone was trying to deceive them into thinking that there is no judgment coming for someone doing these unrepentant behaviors. Let's walk through the group of 10. Neither the sexually immoral, those who commit sexual acts outside of marriage, nor idolaters, that's ancient idolatry, worshiping statues, or modern idolatry, the occult, or finding, finding their identity in money, or their work, or their relationships, nor adulterers, those who were unfaithful to their covenant marriage vows, physical adultery or emotional adultery, they get the seven-year itch and they choose to scratch. The list continues, or men who practice homosexuality. Those who rebel against God's intention of a one-man, one-woman marriage. The Bible is consistent in its condemnation of homosexuality as sinful and contrary to the design and plan of God. It's condemned in the Old Testament. It's condemned in the New Testament. Paul deals with homosexuality here. He deals with lesbianism in Romans 1. One historian said Socrates and Plato were homosexuals. 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexual. Homosexuality was commonly accepted in Corinth and Paul did not want it accepted in the church. Now there are some so-called scholars who do some ridiculous hermeneutical gymnastics to say that the Bible doesn't address homosexuality, only promiscuous homosexuality. Like Matthew Vines, who wrote God and the Gay Christian. One Protestant chaplain at Westland University, trying to defend homosexuality, said, and I quote, 
Those passages will be brought up and used against us over and over again until Christians demand their removal from the biblical canon or at the very least formally discredit their authority to prescribe behavior, end quote. In other words, rip those words out of the Bible. The Bible condemns all homoerotic relationships as sinful. The gender-bending nature of our culture is no different than what Corinth was going through. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, sex change, God condemns it all as a distortion of his created order. Gender perversions is what it is. God wants no blurring of the genders. Now, I told you there were, there were 10 groups on the list. By now, you have counted and noticed there are only nine. And you say, well, that's what a public school education gets you. <laughs> there are actually 10 groups in the Greek, but only nine groups in the English. Our English translations combine two groups into one. The word translated homosexuality actually makes up two groups. And I desire to use discretion here because I know that there are children present. The, the, the two groups, one is man betters and the other word is effeminate. It speaks of both the active and passive roles in that abominative, abominable relationship. The active and passive roles. The list continues, nor thieves, these are scam artists or con artists, the guy who says, I want a down payment to do work on your car or your house, and then he never shows up. This is people who steal candy or Ferraris. Nor the greedy, greed influences business practices. Some of you are proving you're not Christians by your greedy behavior. Nor drunkards. You better be careful with your intake of alcohol and how quickly you run to it after a hard day. Well, it's not real alcohol. It's a, it's a bottle of wine. When is the last time you've heard someone called a drunk? Does that category even exist anymore? I mean, I know it does in the Bible, but in our society. Now, let me give you an unpopular hot take. I don't think alcoholism is a disease. Just like I don't think all these other sins on the list are diseases. God doesn't send people to hell for a disease. Well, he's just a serial adulterer. It's a disease. He's a drunkard. He has a disease. God says they are all choices. We don't create categories to free people from the responsibility of their sins. These are not conditions. They are choices. And some of you have been trained to think like that. It's wrong. It excuses you of your sin. You're not born a drunkard or born anything else on this list, including homosexuality. And by the way, don't tell me I'm not sensitive. This is a wonderful Mother's Day text. <laughs> the list goes on. Nor revilers. These are verbally abusive people who rail on others all the time. Men, that's not being type A. 
That's not strong leadership. Stop excusing yourself. That's tearing people down with your tongue. No revilers in the kingdom. Nor swindlers. That's those who legally steal from others with their business dealings. Tom Schreiner says of this list, you cannot give yourself over to evil and still expect to enter the kingdom of God. Such warnings do not quench assurance, but are the pathway to it. If I were to summarize this list, I would say it's, it's not exhaustive, it's representative. For instance, it says nothing of murder, but you do find that on other lists. Now, we've finished that dirty, ugly, filthy list. Now, my favorite verse in the passage, verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This shows the background of some of these early converts. It highlights their pre-conversion past. This was their life B.C., before Christ. This is who they used to be, but not now. The gospel invaded a very sinful culture of Corinth. The gospel penetrated a very sinful people in Corinth. And notice, none of them tried to carry their sinful past into their new life in Christ. No one ever said, I, I had this sin, then I met Christ. But nothing changed. You change, friend. You have both the motivation and the power to repent of these sins and no longer be described or enslaved by them. And to argue that one cannot be changed from these pollutants casts doubt on the power of the Spirit of God. Those were the things that marked their pre-Christian life. Those are not the things that mark them now. John Newton said... I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. The evidence of the power of Christianity lies within a changed life. Son of a drunkard, you got a new daddy now. A Christian after conversion may commit one of these sins. But he cannot live in those sins. The Holy Spirit inside of him will not allow it. The gospel is full of mercy towards sinners. But it shows no mercy towards sin. For a Christian to continue to do these things is unheard of to Paul. He does not have that category. Now we're dealing with verse 11, or, or to be more accurate, verse 11 is dealing with us. FFC, let us never forget, the church of Jesus Christ doesn't shut its door on any sinner who repents and puts their faith in Jesus Christ alone. May God redeem from Clarksville and Oak Grove and Hopkinsville and Fort Campbell some from each 
each of these 10 groups and drop them in FFC so we can shepherd them with the word. Now, I want to talk to some of you non-Christians. I don't care what sin on the list you are doing over and over and over and over again, you are not beyond the reach of God. Just because you've lived that life doesn't mean you're condemned to hell. You can repent right now and put your faith in Christ alone and be washed. And you say, Kyle, after all I've done, I've done things that would make you blush. After all that, I've, I've not gone too far. You are never too far gone. Today is the day you know what it means to be washed, to be sanctified, to be justified. You may have outsend me. I doubt it. You may have outsend me, but you have not outsend God's mercy. Let us tell you, non-Christian, what has happened to us. And us Christians need to be reminded, the text says, but we were washed. We used to be defined by all the sins just listed and many more not listed. But all that filth has been removed. Aorist tense, the action is completed. Those sins are gone. G-O-N-E, gone. My sins are gone, washed away. God removes the dirt of our transgressions. You were sanctified. That's aorist past tense. This is completed. The work is done. We are sanctified. It is our position. Our status is a washed people. Our status is a holy people. We are sanctified. You were justified. Jesus Christ has provided the righteousness, the right standing before God that we needed. Washed, sanctified, justified, all three of these realities are applied to us. We are a new people. This is what the gospel does. Do not pass over quickly the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. The whole trinity is involved in this plan. We were so sinful, it took the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to redeem us. And it continues to take the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to keep us. One final word to children. To those of you growing up in a Christian home. And then to some adults who grew up in a Christian home. You may look at us and see our horrible life of sin B.C., before Christ, and you may think, I, I don't have that. I, I, I didn't live a life of putrid sin before Jesus saved me. I didn't see that Corinthian change in my life. You don't need to read this list and say, I was never these things. You need to read this list and say, these were things I would have done if Jesus did not save me early. All these sins were in your heart. Jesus saves you from the penalty of your sins, but also sometimes from the very sins themselves. 
Alistair Begg says, the grace of God is no less wonderful when it saves us from the possibility of a life of sin than when it saves us out of the actuality of a life of sin. Christians in court, Christians in the kingdom. Christians airing their dirty laundry, Christians washed of their dirty sins. Father, we have no hope to render perfect obedience in all these areas. So we rest in the obedience of Christ in our place. In our actions at FFC, help us to live out the instructions found for us in this passage. To not only hear the exposition, but to live the exposition. Lord, it is in our heads, but only you can move it to our hearts and our hands and our feet. Do that now so we can live it out this week. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.